What's up, everybody? Welcome to a new podcast called Back to the Movies. My name is Ben, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend. I'm Nat. How's Nat. it going, everyone? <laughs> uh, I'm doing great. No, this is good. Yeah. Look, we're both a little nervous. We haven't recorded a podcast before, but here's the deal. We love movies. We want to talk about movies. Nat. And we've... Oh, yes? How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the social engineering and the technological engineering of recording a podcast but yeah, it's a real shit show it's a shit show <laughs> um but yeah I, i'm excited i'm very i've been thinking about this all day this has been my number one activity of the day yeah me too. Um, do you want to explain the general concept of this podcast ben yeah let's get into it so the idea of a very good year is we're going to look at years of cinema history the ones that we think are are good, the ones that have a, a, a wealth of great movies, and try and figure out what it is about that year, what was going on, you know, in the soil that produced all of these great films. We're starting with the year 1990, uh, for a couple of reasons. years ago. Uh, first off, 30 years ago this year. Uh, it was the year that we were both born, right? April 5th, 1990. Missed the 80s by, what, three months and five days? Um, so yeah, it's, it's a crazy year for me because it's the year that I came into existence and yours, you as well, like a week before March 4th, a month before, I feel like it's a huge turning point for like history and for movie making as well. It's right before the indie scene kind of exploded or right when it exploded. It's when like the old studio Hollywood system is like still in its full swing, like it's not like fully corporatized yet, but a lot of that is there. Um, it's kind of when it's reaching yeah. its its you know its highest peak that it will get after like the fall of the golden age. You know where the studios still have a tremendous amount of power and creative control before they're swallowed up by these huge corporate conglomerations. When they're still producing a wide variety of of, of different kinds of movies. Yeah, totally. Um, and also it's pre digital. You're still really in that film world of like, you really need a machine to get a movie going. But at the same time, you got guys like Soderbergh right there, ready to go. And you have filmmakers like Spike Lee, that are making amazing independent movies. So like you get a really good mix of like massive studio movies that are high quality and indie movies and just all sorts of stuff. That's really cool. And that's true of the entire decade of the 90s and specifically of 1990, which kicks it off. I mean, the movies that we have lined up to talk about really emphasize this contrast between big budget studio filmmaking, like what we're going to talk about today, and a lot of really interesting independent cinema that's up and coming about collisions between technology. I mean, we can talk about it again when we get into the movie we're talking about today, but the rise of digital effects versus practical effects the rise of digital filmmaking versus analog filmmaking. So all that stuff's really interesting about this year in particular, and it's you know why we decided to start with 1990. Yeah. So our idea is we're going to look at these movies, and we're going to try and figure out, was 1990 a very good year? What made it a very good year? And we're going to start by talking about The Hunt for Red October. Now, we're looking at the movies roughly in chronological order, right? So we're starting in the spring of 1990, and The Hunt for Red October was the first big hit of the year. Yeah, it was mostly, like, 
movies I'd never heard of before. Seemed like a lot of garbage before that. There's definitely a few sneaking in there. You got like Tremors as like a cult hit. Oh, so, yeah. Tremors came out before October. What what day did it come out exactly? Hunt for Red October came out on March 2nd, 1990. Two days before my birthday. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It yeah. was in theaters. It was. You it, were born was, opening weekend. I was born opening weekend of Hunt for Red October. Sunday. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's good. It's a movie I, I feel a lot of personal connection with. So. Part of the uh, the premise here is that we're each going to pick movies that we think we should talk about from the year, and I picked Hunt for Red October. So yeah, what is what is so special about the movie to you? Because I had never seen it before last night. Um, I had heard about it for many years, but I had never actually sat down and watched watched it. For me, Hunt for Red October is in like the canon of dad movies, specifically my dad. We didn't have a lot of things in common. We didn't have a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, but one of the things that we could find connection with was movies because he loved movies, but he loved a very specific kind of movies and they were exactly the cliched kind of dad movies you'd think they were. Um, he loved action thrillers. He loved James Bond movies. He loved Jurassic Park. And so like, these were the kinds of films that when I started watching them, that was something we could talk about and we could share together and we could sit down on a Sunday afternoon and look at what was on TNT and just sit down and watch the movie together. Did your dad go to Red October the weekend it came the out? The opening weekend when my mom was about to be in labor? When I don't she believe was expecting. so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, he was he was at the theater during my birth. Yeah. <laughs> he was seeing it for like the fourth time. He he wanted my middle name to be Ramius, but you know, mom wouldn't allow it, so <laughs> No, but so the idea was that like, you know, this was Hunt for Red October was a little bit more mature than some of those movies, particularly like the Roger Moore James Bond movies that he particularly loved and Jurassic Park, which I could watch when I was a little bit younger, so there was always this other movie that mm-hmm. I didn't get to see until I, I was in high school, you know, just didn't make the rounds quite as much, and I knew he loved it. I mean he was a Tom Clancy fan, and this was definitely like this and the um the Harrison Ford, Jack Ryan, Ryan movies Patriot that followed. Games. Yeah. Patriot Games and uh, Clear and Present Danger were, were big favorites of his. And so when I finally got around to watching them, that felt like a really important moment. We definitely sat down and watched Hunt for Red October together. I don't, oh, wow. I don't know okay. exactly when that was. I probably would have been 12 or 13 years old. But the first time I watched it, we were definitely together. And so that was like this big moment for me. And, and part of the reason this movie feels special is because this is something that I share with my dad, and I suspect a lot of people did as well, because this is, again, like the ultimate dad movie. Totally. Yeah, it's very dad. And I can see why I never fell into it, because I feel like it's not a movie that you would be watching as a kid. Like it, it for me, I was like, I'm glad I didn't see this until now, because like I definitely wouldn't have understood the socio political implications of it, which is like interesting. That's the whole movie, right? Like there's barely any action set pieces. It's all like people in submarines talking to each other. Well, and there's so much behind it that you need to know. And something I wanted to talk about with 1990 was like me. I don't know if it was just bad education or like people were kind of taking it for granted. But like when I was growing up as someone born in 1990, after the Berlin wall fell, I was really out of the loop on what communism was and what the Soviet Union meant. I knew it was something that was a huge deal for a really long time. And I knew that we were enemies with them. And I knew like, I had a rough understanding of what the Cold War was, but like, I don't know what happened to me personally, but 
I just was never sat down and was like, so there was this crazy military industrial complex where like people were building missiles and like we literally thought we were going to be blown up and this whole communism, like all I heard was just, oh, communism failed. That was sort of, I feel like I was growing up in like the post glow of like communism failing and like no one actually took the time to like explain to me like what that meant. So a lot of these like Cold War and even like James Bond, like the James Bond we grew up with was Pierce Brosnan, which was like a post-Soviet Union thing. Um, And we were like the first generation to really grow up in a world without that threat and without that dichotomy. So I'm kind of glad I I, I didn't see this because I I wouldn't have understood it until now. I'm with you 100%. Yeah. For me, like the Soviets were like movie bad guys. Yeah, they, they were, were movie like bad a guys. real thing. It wasn't real. Yeah. The thing I always remember is in Austin Powers when he gets unfrozen and he's like sitting there with the generals and there's there's a Russian and Austin is like, oh, and then they're like, we won Austin. And I never like understood what that meant. I was just like, okay, he was he was bad, I guess. And we won. But like, it's so much more complicated than that. And I think this movie is a great choice because it's all about sort of the reconciliation and the end of the cold war it's a great movie for 1990 and it's a great movie to kick this off because it's so of its time it came out like four months after the berlin wall went down right not just of its time politically but also like aesthetically and oh yeah um, totally with the choices made like in casting and all that we could talk about this but this is like the most 1990 movie ever made yeah totally now i have a theory about the cold war that i want to save until we talk about tom clancy which we'll get to soon i'm sure but before we get into that, I just want to like quickly touch base on like how you felt about it. Obviously, like I kind of love this movie. That's why I recommended it. Even today, with some reservations towards its you know fetishization of warfare, I still really love just how grounded the movie is, how bold it is, and its choices about like how to present its drama. Um, but this was your first time seeing it, and what did you think? Did it work? Did it did it hold up? I I really enjoyed it. I really liked the humanity in it. Like I liked that at the end of the day, it's about two people connecting. It's about one man, like understanding what another man is going through and like why he, I like that. He's like basically one man against the machine. That's like, he's telling the government like, no, this isn't what you think it is. And he understands what this person is thinking. And I thought that was such a cool thing to have beneath all of the ridiculousness because I also watching the movie, I was like, I kind of got hit with a blow of like, I was appalled. I can't believe that this went on for 45 years and I can't believe that we're still doing it. I know the shit that we do is like the things that you see in this movie are reprehensible. Like just the fact that these things exist and are are just driving around massive, horrifying machines of war. The fact that they existed. Yeah, the fact that they... And, like, I I wrote down in my notes, I was like, the military-industrial complex is terrible. Like, it's everything Eisenhower warned. He warned us 50 years ago. And, like, this movie just captures it so well because, like, it keeps the humans in check. It keeps both sides in check. Like, everyone is a human being. um, Except for maybe... uh, Tupolev. Um, Tupolev. Yeah, he's kind of a psycho. 
Yeah, he's he's just nuts. But yeah, like it, even when it's like cutting back to like the ambassadors and stuff, and like the ambassador is like, uh, I don't even know what's going on. Like it it it, it, it sympathizes with the Soviets Absolutely. just as much as it sympathizes with the Americans. And I thought that was really cool. And yeah, no, it was it was really entertaining, and like I loved the mystery aspect of it. It was really well written, and it didn't overstay its welcome either. Like it it kept going to new places and you're really anticipating, oh, they're going to meet like, oh, now he's, he's on this ship. Like it, it, it gives you all these great characters and then you see them slowly come together. And like, it's the ultimate team up at the end when all of the coolest people are running the ship together. Like that was amazing. Superbly structured the way it builds. To yeah. That. I really want to yeah. emphasize what you just, when you said a while back, which I think what, what makes this movie really interesting and what makes Jack Ryan such a great hero is that he's a hero who wins the day through his intelligence and his empathy. You know, he's not yeah. the strongest guy. He's not the toughest guy. He's not the best shot. But he's the guy who understands things the best. And mm-hmm. in the face of the overwhelming inhumanity of the Cold War, of the military in general, you know, having one person who can see through it clearly is what you need to prevent disaster. Exactly. And that really works. That really works. Yeah. And it gets it's a great Cold War movie because it gets all those points across and it, it just feels like it's saying something about all of this. Even without having like a really... I mean, I guess at the end of the day, the message is like, don't just kill people. Like, everyone's a human. But like... It, Unless it they're Tupolev. Really kill Tupolev and then everyone else can hang out. Yeah. I mean, it's other than Tupolev. But yeah, it, it does a really good job of like presenting a situation, presenting all the characters and what they want out of the situation and kind of saying something without preaching. Like it it gives you a world, it gives you a set of characters with a set of beliefs. And like, I just, I I thought it was a really well-made movie. Um, That being said, it did not top Die Hard for me. Well, we'll talk Um, about that. In fact, that's the next thing I want to talk about. Like, so we're going to talk through the movie and its plot But before we do, I want to talk about the two authors of the movie, because this will be our best chance. And and they both have such distinct hands in shaping what Hunt for Red October became. And they're both such interesting people. And that's Tom Clancy and John McTiernan. So Tom Clancy, who wrote the book, and John McTiernan, who directed the movie. I think we should talk about Clancy first, because, you know, he wrote the book. You know, he, he starts this whole thing. And he is... I mean, I said, you know, this is the most 1990 movie of all time. Part of that is because it's based off a book by Tom Clancy, and Tom Clancy ruled the 90s. Like, there was no bigger author in the 90s than Tom Clancy. He redefined what it meant to be an author, what literature was, what, what people would do in their spare time on airplanes. Like, the guy is a brand name for a reason. How much you, did you ever read any of Clancy's books? No, I haven't. Um, my dad was a fan. I remember he was like really into uh, some of all fears. But no, my only exposure to Clancy was like really wanting to play Rainbow Six and then like playing it as like a nine year old and like not understanding how it worked because it was like a super tactical, like you had to plan out what was going to go down before the level started. And like it was, I was just like, oh, Tom Clancy's serious shit. It, it kind of intimidated me a little bit, but no, I'm I'm really not familiar with any of his his work other than the video game series Rainbow Six, which is pretty uh, 
ridiculous. Well, we should definitely talk about the video game licensing because it's a whole other thing that's really interesting. Um, but I'm, I'm in the same boat. I've never actually read any of his books cover to cover. When I was setting up my office to record this podcast, I saw I owned a copy of Hunt for Red October. I don't remember buying it, but I happened oh, to have wow. it. Um, and so I started reading it. I'm like 50 pages in. But I was in the same place where it's like these were the things that my dad read and that my uncles read yeah. and that you saw people in airports reading and, and dudes waiting, you know, in doctors, you know, doctors uh, office waiting rooms reading. Um, and I think that one of the most interesting things about Clancy is he was the author of the 90s and then he was gone. People yeah. don't I don't feel like our generation reads his books, even though he no. was, you know, this huge cultural icon uh, basically transcended as to, into like a pop cultural icon to the point where his name is a name brand that they license for video games even though those video games have basically nothing to do with his works aren't based That's off right. things that he wrote crazy well i mean I re- it's the trends kind of move there was da vinci code after tom clancy and there was yeah. you know i feel like it's it's always shifting a little bit um but it's also a it's kind of jingoistic right it's all about like war and like the american industrial military complex like it's it seems like it's not the kind of thing that our generation would be into after being in wars for the last 20 years like so this is the last thing we want i wanted to talk about when we're talking about the end of of the cold war in 1990 and this movie in particular um but we'll get into a second because i I just want to say quickly about sort of his background so clancy was an insurance salesman and Hunt for October was his first novel that he wrote in his spare time while he was selling insurance in Maryland. And he brings it to the publishing arm of the Naval Academy. Uh, he doesn't try and like, or maybe he does, but he fails to publish it through major publishing houses. But the Navy, the Naval Institute Press reads this and says, hey, here's our chance to break into fiction. So far, we've only done journals and, and trade publications. Here we finally have the opportunity with a book that is very pro-Navy that it's very impeccably researched and accurate. This is our opportunity to break into fiction. And the book was this huge success, totally unpredicted by their part. They they massively underprinted it, and then it was picked up by other publishers and sold. And this book is what launches the rest of his career. Mm. And what I think really worked in Clancy's favor, and what Humphrey Red October exemplifies, and particularly some of his next few books that, that take place in the 90s, is he's very reactionary to the end of the Cold War, I think one of the things that's really interesting is how the Cold War ends, where it kind of just, after this huge buildup during the Reagan years, with a new arms race and more military and economic pressure on the Soviet Union, there was this feeling that we were building towards a climax, and then it just kind of faded away. Right. Communism failed, the Soviet Union failed, and there was never really the cathartic final battle of the Cold War. It all took place in economic markets and, you know, social social uh, stratospheres and didn't give a generation of people who grew up with the fear of communism, of nuclear war, anything to grasp onto. It was this literally defined, like you said, it was 45 years. It was 50 years of American history. And then it was over. Well, we just forgot about it immediately, I think. Well, except I don't it think was, we forgot it about it. There just wasn't anything to be done. And someone like Clancy comes in and says, no, this war didn't peter out. This war was won through the battles that you never heard of. This Uh, war was a real threat. And he gives us these sort of cathartic visions of America's victory in the Cold War right at the time when we were most feeling the need for some kind of resolution to what had happened, some way to understand it. 
in a deeper sense and in a more and more victorious sense. Um, I think that's the the great gold vein of 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 American popular psychology that he taps into. Um, and part of the reason he's so successful, because he follows up Hunt for Red October, which is a book that presents itself as an alternate history of a sort of Cold War ending conflict that's happening uh, with a book that's literally about World War Three, started by the Russians and how NATO would defeat them. And that mm. book is also a big seller. Uh, so, like, these are the kinds of things that he's writing about, even though they are being published at a time where they aren't necessarily as accurate. Now, it's worth saying that Hunt October, the book, is published before the fall of the Berlin Wall. That it takes uh, yeah, many years. Right? Yeah, exactly. It takes many years for the movie to get made. But it's still yeah. tapping into this, this feeling that I think, and, you know, gains popularity as we, we feel a greater need for the Cold War to have some kind of pat summation yeah and and thankfully it wasn't actually a nuclear war yes thank god <laughs> um, but then interestingly when you know 9-11 happens when terrorism becomes the major threat and he does pivot his books to be primarily about terrorism that's when his popularity starts to diminish when the war becomes real again yeah that's when people don't really want his sort of particular kind of escapist fantasy and also, I mean, why would you? Doesn't help that some of his stuff gets really bug nuts crazy. Like by Ooh. the end of the Jack Ryan series, Jack Ryan has been president when he left the presidency, started a non-governmental intelligence agency which steals intelligence from the CIA and the NSA and uses it to assassinate terrorists and world leaders by their own authority. And oh, while God. he's doing that, he is re-running for president because when he was president before he wasn't elected so he can still run obviously that's oh. like like meant to be over the top and silly in the way that some of his stuff is but it's also like when you think about where he begins with very grounded realistic depictions of the military and of the intelligence community you're like oh geez something went way off the rails here and i don't know what it is that's what you gotta do to keep it going forever you know you gotta you gotta keep upping the stakes i guess um, but yeah, it's, it's, and it, yeah, it's the kind of thing that I was very aware of it growing up, but never felt like I needed to get into it. Um, right. But yeah. So, and then what about McTiernan? Okay. So John McTiernan, who's the director of this film is the other really fascinating figure because he's the reason that the movie after years finally gets made. The, the book was optioned before it was even published. And so there was basically a decade where writers and directors and, and producers were trying to crack this movie. And it isn't until Mac Tiernan gets on board that that finally happens. I think it's interesting to look at his filmography because that sort of explains how that happened or why he was able to make that happen. Yeah. So John McTiernan, he graduates from AFI and he directs a movie called Nomads. Have you ever seen or heard of this movie? Not until I was doing a little research today. Um, but it sounds like it was kind of a, a bust, right? Total bust. Really weird movie. I watched it after we decided oh, wow. to do this because we had a little bit of downtime when we had to reschedule. Um, yeah. Pierce Brosnan is an anthropologist who is murdered and his doctor relives his memories through like flashbacks and dreams and discovers that he was investigating a society of Inuit shape-changing demons who disguise themselves oh, as like... A, a biker gang and it's it's a really weird movie it doesn't work uh performances are pretty bad but the scenes of tension in it are are 
are interesting and are, are pretty good. I mean, that's one of his great strengths is he's a good at building suspense in sequences. Well, yeah, and something I wanted to mention was uh, in kind of I listened to a couple interviews by him and like he he graduated AFI, but he did like commercials for ten years before right. he did Nomads. And he also studied with his his cinematographer Jan Debon, who directed Speed later on, and Twister, and Twister, and, and like, shot Die Hard and shot this movie. Yeah, shot all these movies, and but he was just talking about how Jan Debon would be like, "What you have to do to learn how to become a filmmaker is like watch Fellini movies and memorize each shot, and then sit at this desk and." write out each shot from memory just like an insane level of like because he basically says like if i was a concert pianist i wouldn't be reading sheet music like i would i would listen to autumn sonata a thousand times and be able to recite it from memory so i need to be able to do the same exact thing with a film well i'll give i'll give him this this movie looks fucking great yeah, it looks amazing. It's, and it's fantastic. It's it's also kind of interesting to me because, like, I don't know if John McTiernan is necessarily an auteur. He's not really someone with, like... Obviously, he makes certain types of movies, but, like, he's not someone that has, like, a really distinct point of view. It doesn't seem like he's bringing a lot of, like, his personal life into these movies beyond, like, maybe what his interests are. Um, sure. But... It's clear that for these movies, he's like a master of like filmmaking. Of he's like the ultimate craftsman. Okay, craft. let's well let's get back to his his filmography because so he makes Nomads. It doesn't do well, but Arnold Schwarzenegger sees it and he and he likes what he sees for like what it is. He says you know for the budget that Mac Tiernan was working on, the uh, the 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 particularly the suspense scenes are very effective and at the time. Schwarzenegger is in the middle of developing Predator. You know, mm-hmm. at this point, he's got enough clout that he can basically handpick his directors, and he picks McTiernan to direct Predator, and McTiernan knocks it out of the park. I mean, it's one of the Kills greatest it. action movies ever made. Yeah, it's his second. I've actually bat. never seen Predator. I gotta, I gotta check that one. Oh out. Oh my god! Uh, I know. Get I to know. the chopper. And then it's on to Die Hard. Which is I know, then he classic. follows it up with motherfucking Die Hard, like, arguably yeah. the greatest action movie ever made. Yeah, no, it's crazy. He's And, and then like, this comes next. This is number four. That's a good run. And then it seems like it kind of petered out a little Definitely. bit. And then he, he got, like, arrested for wiretapping his producers. It's so just, I'm glad you mentioned that, because I wanted to go into person. that. He's a crazy person. I'm sure he's, like, one a very unpleasant person to be around. I mean, like, I can already tell. Like, a, a level, a craftsman of that level who has literally been to jail for, like, recording people. I I don't mean to speak ill of the man, but, like, I can tell, like, I wouldn't want to be near him unless I was working, and even then it would probably be terrible. You see him in interviews, and it's clear he's, like, this... He's an alpha male, and maybe that's, you know, why some of these actors respond to him, because they like, you know, the challenge and the bunning heads, but he's kind of toxic. I mean, yeah. what you said is true. I, I had always thought he'd gone to jail for, like, a tax thing, but I was reading about it for, for our episode here, and yet he he illegally wiretapped his producing partner and his ex-wife. His producing Over partner though to to yeah, the producer partner for Rollerball because they disagreed about what direction the movie was going in and he wanted to dig up dirt that he could use to to besmirch yeah. the producer with the studio executives. How fucking insane is that? 
I Can mean, you imagine if like J.J. Abrams was wiretapping insanity. Kathleen Kennedy so that he could take control of Star Wars by, you know, showing, by, by playing audio clips of her to Disney? Like, that's what yeah, we're talking about. That's totally really insane. Nuts. And it was also all over Rollerball, which is, I remember seeing that in theaters and I was like, Jesus, this is bad. Movie. Like, and my standards were not high. I was like 12 years old and I was still like, wow, this is bad. Um... But yeah, he's the kind of guy that had a really good run, and for whatever reason, it doesn't last. I mean, not just a really good run, like an unbelievable run. Predator, uh, Die Hard, Hunt for Red October, and I'm going to even throw Die Hard 3 in there, which is his follow-up for Hunt for Red October, are all really great action movies, and several of them are like transcend the genre, are just some of the best action movies ever made. I also like... Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna put a target on my back here, but he made two other movies that I actually kind of like, which are Thirteenth um, Warrior, in which Antonio Banderas plays like an Arab mercenary who joins a crew of Vikings to go fight Grendel. It's based off a Michael Crichton novel. Oh, cool! It's not good, but I, I like it. And then uh, Basic, which is what if the director of Die Hard made Rashomon, and uh, it's got one of the worst John Travolta performances of all time. But if you like R- Rashomon, then I don't know, it's kind of fun. Yeah, I gotta check that one out too. Well, maybe I don't. I don't know. Should I check <laughs> no, that you, out? No, you definitely, you definitely don't. But maybe when we get to, I don't know, whatever that is, two thousand and four, I'll make sure that that one makes it on there. So, what are we doing next? Are we going through the movie? Yeah, let's let's talk through the movie and 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 pick out things that we want to sort of expound on a little bit more. Movie opens with that 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 title card, right? Where where it talks about how this is like a secret history. Well, and it's like the radar, which was cool. It's definitely setting the scene immediately. Intense titles. But yeah, I, I like that a lot. The uh, the radar aesthetic. And and I, I love the line, like, according to the governments of the U.S. and the USSR, none of what you're about to see ever happened. Oh, it's so good. Right. Such a good hook. Yeah. I will say this, though. It, it definitely made me think... It definitely, like, spoiled it a little bit for me. I was like, okay, there's going to be some, like, fuckery. With, like, I knew that the ship was going to make it just by seeing that. Uh, like, interesting. I was like, okay, they're going to they're they're gonna get away with it. Like, there was no, like, I don't know. It, I, I don't know if I would have put that, but... Right, because I'm it tells the us... In, like, the first five it, seconds. It says what the, the cover-up story is, and then you're like, well, if, right. if the cover-up story is what's happening, we wouldn't be watching this movie. Yeah, it's like a successful cover-up. Um, so we cut, from but then this... it goes to Jack in his in his office. No, right? before that, house. we get our first shot of the movie, which is oh, the scene, Sean Connery's eyes. Yeah, that was great. So let's talk about Connery. Do you what do you think of Connery? I mean, he's amazing. He's got so much charisma, and he's got such an amazing gray fox look. That like, hairpiece with that is beard. fucking phenomenal. Yeah, no, and it, it's like. It's a treat to see him in a movie. Like I've I've seen a lot of his movies and like especially like older Connery like eighties and it's awesome to see like it's nice to see like a movie star just like graduate to that role and like do it with such like class and coolness. Dude, I'm so glad yeah, you agree he's because amazing. he got he gets some shit for the accent, but I don't I don't care Get over it. I think he is. Yeah phenomenal in this movie i think this movie doesn't work without him he wasn't no, the yeah, original person cast someone with his you need someone with his gravitas and like his you need someone that could you could feasibly imagine convincing a room full of high-ranking submarine officers to to go rogue right like 
And really, the only person I could imagine doing that is Connery. Like the other, thing, I would I would go rogue for him. Totally. I mean, yeah. Like when they're all in that room and they're doing their debate, and then he speaks up, you get why they all shut up and just go along with it. Yeah. When they're all in the little board room. It's a, it's I actually think the other thing that he does that's really important for the movie, and that really only someone like Connery can do, is that the Ramius character is really hard to pull off because we have to not know for sure what he's up to but he's also like one of our main characters and we kind of have to root for him yeah and that's really tricky because you know he's the one of the first things we see him do is murder a guy yeah that's true well and you it's funny because i i I didn't expect this to happen but like if you i didn't know the plot of this movie at all but i i did end up reading like the description of it just because i like to do that sometimes just to like kind of get a contextual understanding of like what I'm getting myself into. Um, And I kind of wish I hadn't because the way that this movie sets it up, I think that you wouldn't know that he's not going rogue until about 45 minutes in. Like you wouldn't really know what his deal is until Baldwin figures it out. Until Ryan says he's defective. Yeah. Yeah. But of course in the, in the, in the trailer marketing material, like they, and in the description, they got to make sure you know that Connery's not a villain. And anyone who would have read the book would have known that too. Yeah. But the way they constructed is really cool because, you know, you don't necessarily know that he's not going crazy and you can easily see the movie veering in that direction where it's like, okay, we got to, we got to take him out. He's going nuts. I think uh, a big part of that comes down movie. to Connery's performance where, you know, you you inherently trust Connery because, you know, he's James Bond. Um, you know, he's, he's yeah. coming off the untouchables like he's a person you want to like, um, but he does seem dangerous. Yeah, he does. He's like a lion in this movie. Like he's he's regal and, and awe-inspiring, but he's also kind of scary. And until you know for sure whether or not he's going to bite you, you don't know how to react. That must have been a thing in that era where like he's playing a russian did a lot of americans play russians in in that era like in the 80s was that like i know like you know you have alan rickman playing hans but german like was that a big deal that fucking connery is playing a russian general even though he's defecting i don't know like of any other movies where like that's well a major star is playing the enemy sure I definitely have to correct you because if anyone ever listens to this, they will certainly comment on this. He's Scottish, but I know what you mean. Oh, an American sorry. star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An American hero. Yeah, yeah like a, a big movie star. And he's effectively the hero of the movie. I mean, Ryan's the main hero, but he's like the second most heroic person in the movie, and he is a Russian. He's a Soviet. He's technically Lithuanian, yeah. so he's not he's not actually Russian, but he is, you know, Soviet. But yeah, Russians were just the bad guys in every movie. Yeah. Like, that's... And it, it was like a propaganda machine almost. It's like, yeah, Russians are bad. Like, and, and what you said early on is that this movie doesn't want to make that distinction. There are definitely bad Russians in this. I mean, the intelligence officer. Did you catch his name, by the way? The intelligence officer that gets murdered? No, I can't remember. His name is Putin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I remember which, hearing it. Yeah. And being like, oh. um, so anyway, the intelligence officer, the, the Tupolev is clearly kind of like, you know, almost Ahab-esque in his pursuit of Ramius. Um, well, and they say that he's a dick in the yes. The intelligence officer is like, ah, oh, he's Connery's like he sucks. Basically, <laughs> he deserves to die. He has nothing. He has no, no one movie. in his heart but Tupolev. 
So yeah, but it it was just interesting to me. Like, okay, this is a guy that was James Bond. Obviously, like the Russians played a huge part of that lore, and it's just interesting to see he's now crossed over and is playing a Russian. Well, and breaking bringing it back to the first shot, I actually think the camera sort of plays with that a little bit because we start on his eyes, and you know immediately it's Sean Connery because it's his eyes. Like you you've seen them a thousand times, but then it pulls back, and it's like the Russian hat the the furry cap with the with the submarine right. insignia on it and you're like oh shit connery's a russian yeah even though you already knew that going in it 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 definitely plays with that iconography of his star persona and the inversion of it yeah and something else i wanted to talk about on the for, for the opening scene is like i always have this vision of like this goes back to the military industrial complex but like i just love that setting of like just the middle of nowhere in the freezing ocean. Like, that is just scary to me. It's scary to me that there are, like, these massive machines just roaming around, like, upper upper latitude shit. Right. And Out of like, sight, but if not... If you were to fall off of the submarine, you would just be dead. Like, it's like going to, like, space. And, and something I wanted to sort of point out about this movie is... It's basically a sci-fi movie in a way. Totally. Like, it's all about these guys on ships and on, like, crazy vessels. And basically what amounts to, like, aliens coming to Earth and a one man deciding the aliens are not coming to kill us. They're coming as friends. And they're coming to... Like, I was kind of looking 100%. at it that way. And I was like, you, you could easily translate it to this. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was really interesting just because, like, it's Arrival or it's, like, Mars Attacks or whatever where, like, there's one person being like, no, they're good. We can't. You could easily just translate. Or Close Encounters, I guess, would be the number one. Sure. The number no, one they're not here to hurt us. The other thing that's really great about that observation is is this idea of, like, the depersonalization of the enemy is that to some perspectives, people like the Soviets were alien. To the Americans. Yeah. You know, they weren't human beings yeah. at that point. Um, so I kind of, I like that. Yeah, read. exactly. The other thing I want to talk about from the opening scene is the Red October. Um, I mean, you were talking about it, like how scary these machines are and how much, and how scary they are to look at. They built this massive 600 foot steel mock-up of the top of the Red October of the upper deck that's just floating on two barges. And I think that's wow, so I didn't important. That. Yeah, I mean, that thing is so massive. And the helicopter flies yeah. over it and you see the other boats and the boats look tiny compared to this gigantic submarine. And it doesn't mm-hmm. really call that much attention to it, but I think that sense of scale becomes really important later on and totally speaks to what you were talking about before where you're saying like how scary these things are, these machines that these people are inside. The thing looks almost like, like a shark, but the biggest shark in the world um, and it's yeah. something that was designed for death. I mean, that's Ramius's whole point. Like this thing only exists to slaughter hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. So moving on, you in, you get intro to Jack in yep. his house with like one of the five ro- uh, lines from a woman in this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. Uh, and it's immediately followed yeah. up with with another scene with one of those lines which is one of the most insulting lines in the movie, the stewardess who doesn't know what turbulence is. Oh, yeah, what the fuck? Yeah, that was insane. <laughs> but something I wanted to mention that I, I uh, enjoyed from that opening credits 
run was the uh, I love in movies when they do the slow pan over all the objects mm-hmm. that are like kind of contextualizing everything. They do it in Back to the Future where like it pans over the radioactive material. It pans over all the clocks. And like, I just think I love that as a device of like setting up like the objects in your main character's life. And it, it sells the story perfectly. It's like, oh, he read a bunch of books about submarines. I know like, what, what I think what works about it that. is sometimes that can be a little cliche, but here it feels very specific and honest. And it's, it's not just like, here's every part of his life. It's, Here's one part of his life, which is clearly the most important. This guy yeah. knows naval warfare. His entire life is naval warfare. He's an academic. He is incredibly he's knowledgeable. He's reading books on Civil War naval warfare. It's like right. he's going deep. So, yeah, then where do we go? We get we get to well, James Earl. Ramius kills Putin. He kills the, 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 the yeah. political officer. In a scene that I think is really effective, I mean, that shot where he comes Great up behind kill. him. That's fucking scary. Like, he's he's scary in that yeah. scene. He gets him good. I wasn't expecting it. And then also... And then we get, we get some of our other crew I wanted to quickly members. mention... I wanted to... But speaking of that scene where he kills the guy, I wanted to mention the um, another move that I really respect, which was the Russian going to English, which I'm pretty sure they stole that from Judgment at Nuremberg. They do yes. exactly the yeah, same thing. Yeah, they've said that. Because... Yeah. That's a movie where, yeah. This, if you listen to McTiernan's commentary, he says, like, we literally stole this from Judgment at Nuremberg. Yeah, it's exactly the same. But it works. It's um, so effective. And it's a great thing. Yeah, and it's super respectful of the audience, too. Mm-hmm. It's like, listen, we know you're thinking, okay, these are a bunch of guys speaking English. Like, how are we? And it's like, a, another thing that I really respect is, like, the filmmaker basically making a deal with you. Being sure. like... I'm not going to make these assholes speak in Russian accents. I'm not going to subtitle this whole thing. You're going to get Connery in this role and he's not going to speak Russian for you. Like we're doing this my way and you get it. Okay. That's all you need to know. And like, I just, I just love, I I feel like that's bold. It's really economical and yeah, it is bold. And it's, it's like breaking the fourth wall in a way, but like it works. It's, it's not like taking me out of the movie. I'm not like, Wait, why did they just switch to English? But like, it's done in, in a really stylistic way. They switch on the word Armageddon, which is the same in English as it is in Russian. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's slick. It's yeah. super slick. Yeah. And I feel great about it. Yeah, I think it, it really, I think it works. Even today, you know, when that stuff gets even like more hairy about how you represent cultures in different ways, I think the transition is extremely functional and extremely elegant because we don't want to hear Connery's bad Russian pronunciation the whole movie. We want them to just be able to speak English and and they nail it. The transition's perfect. Yeah. All right, let's talk about some of the other crew members that we get introduced to. We've got Sam Neill as uh, his second-in-command. Uh, what's his name? His name is uh, Borodin. Borodin. Uh, what Borodin. do we think about Sam Neill? Yeah. He's fine. I don't. I wasn't that into him, honestly. Like, I, I feel like someone else could have been in that role. Like, I almost wish it had been like Curry in that role, <laughs> even though he's great as he's his so good character. As the like, I just he's. I don't know. Sam Neill doesn't. He doesn't really do it for me. Sure. He's like. He's kind of blah, and I, I guess it works for um, a military angle, but like, I feel like that's the kind of role you give 
to, to like more of a character Something actor. more colorful I will give you that I, mean, he's I think fine. of all the supporting cast and this movie has a stacked supporting cast he's probably the one who, who stands out the least but I, I, I love Sam Neill. I'm, I'm a sucker. I mean, I love Jurassic Park. I love Event Horizon. And what I bring to him, what I think he brings to the role, too, is just a tremendous sense of, like, humanity. So that even though he doesn't have that much to do, when he dies, I feel it. I feel it. Oh, yeah, uh, and I that's what his yeah, role is it. in the movie. And, like, yeah, he, he's, like, the more human. Because, obviously, Sean Connery is just a machine right. in this movie. Like, he's, like, an ubermensch. And, like, he's sort of the role of, like the more normal person that's like, are we seriously doing this? Yeah. Okay. And then one thing that I appreciate was like, I was expecting the whole movie for him to be the rat. Sure. And it was nice that he was just like a good guy. Like he was just the second in command. And I, I liked that aspect of it. I just thought that him, he didn't bring much to the role. And I, I feel like somebody else could have really done more with it sure um and i mean the, the montana scene is is not a great scene it's very much like i'm retiring at the end of the week don't kill me yeah and, and he, he, yeah, he can't say I, I, I do have something i want to say about that scene that i thought was funny but we can we can get when we get closer to it i'll talk about sure. it sure um, okay so let's we talk also about meet curry. curry yeah dr Curry's Petroff. great He's cool. He's doing his, his Curry thing. Nine. I feel like Curry's a really important like 1990 figure to me. Sure. Like he, I feel like he was just such a good guy to have in your movie for like 10 minutes at that time. And he's in Home Alone. He's in Clue. Mm -hmm. Like just a great. He gets great like he gets actor. like three scenes of this movie, but he nails him. He's like you immediately get who the character is. He serves a, an important plot function, but it doesn't feel like he exists only to serve a plot function. And he's again, great. he's not he's not like a rat. You're expecting all these guys to be menacing or like conniving, and like that's one of the biggest strengths of the movies is like Curry never does go behind Connery's right. back. He's got his back the whole time, and like. Even at the end of the movie, he's, it's just he's a random dude. He's, well, and I, but the mole, the mole is just a random guy. He's like, a cook. The we mole was even know just a random dude. Yeah. So, like, I, I did enjoy how it kind of played with your expectations a little bit, where you're like, okay, who's the mole? Like, yeah. which one of these rat Russians is the and mole? And like, no, the they're scene. all really good people. This <laughs> is the scene where we where we set that up. Where where where. Where the intelligence, where the political officer says, you know, there are KGB people on board. Where we introduce the cook character because he witnesses the uh, the taking of the of the key of the of the missile key from the dead body. All that stuff happens in this scene. He's like, you don't notice him at all. You don't. I didn't yeah, it's it's, him. it's done really well. Where like you can go back and be like, oh, okay, he was here. But the yeah. movie doesn't. It reminds me a lot of um, of James Badge Dale in The Departed, who just ends up shooting Leo. Right. He's there the whole and, like, time. But if you, you don't watch, think about it. yeah, he's there the whole time. You never notice him, and then at the end, he's it's like, oh, that guy. And then when you watch the movie again, you're like, oh, there he was. Um, okay, we should keep moving. So another side side character we get is Ed Rooney from uh, Ferris Bueller. Sure. He's a little bit later, but if we're just talking about side characters, well, before I love that, that guy. We, we get we get before we get to him, and we got to talk about him because I, Jeffrey Jones is a um, I don't know about if you know about his arrest, but he's a he's a controversial figure. Yeah, he's he, he's he's a pedophile. Also, probably not it's, someone I would hang bad. out with. But before uh, we get to him, we've got James Earl Jones as Admiral Greer, and then we've got the American sub. I mean, this cast is yeah. ridiculous. I, I think the scene with Greer is great. He doesn't do very much, but 
Uh, James Earl Jones just exudes so much like fatherliness that uh, he he makes us trust Ryan more because he trusts Ryan. And and it just like it's a really clever and efficient way to get us on board with our main character, which is that he cares Mm -hmm. what Ryan has to say. So we care what Ryan has to say. Yeah, again, it's the humanity. Mm-hmm. It's there's a humanity in every character, um, even though they're these tough as nails military guys. And you can easily see this movie directed by, I don't know, Michael Bay or some somebody who just doesn't who like hates humanity sure. and doesn't <laughs> see like the goodness in people or just like the personality in people, and where it's just one shaved head guy after another screaming at each other or barking orders at each other and it's just not a movie i would want to watch but because of what they do with all these characters where they're consummate professionals but they're also like talking to each other like human beings i just i think that's one of the biggest strengths of the movie everybody is very intelligent everyone acts in a way that feels reasonable but we should say plot wise like so these scenes here is you know, we're establishing the Red October, you know, we've establishing the, the dynamic and the crew. And then we learn from James Earl Jones and later from Jeffrey Jones that this isn't just a sub. This sub has, you know, a magical Christmas drive that makes it silent. Special to radar. drive. Um, it's the Magneto hydrodynamic drive. Exactly. The Caterpillar, which yes. is such an interesting and evocative term, even though it has like nothing to do with anything. Like, I love that. So we're learning that Red October yeah. is... This this serious serious up and we another thing another thing that I wanted to mention that like uh, to tie back to like my whole fear of the military industrial complex is like I didn't realize it was like a nuclear powered submarine until they start talking about like the core and like I just had this moment where I was just like oh my god the submarine's nuclear too like it's just like. It's too much, man. Well, my it's single too, what are we doing? My single favorite shot in the movie is when uh and this is way later in the movie, but it's when they're chasing the mole through the sub, when the mole is trying to launch the uh the warheads from inside the sub to just destroy the sub. And they've entered the missile room and 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 Alec Baldwin, who we still need to talk about, uh leans up against one of the missile tubes and the camera tilts into this crazy Dutch angle and pans out and we see the rows and rows of tubes that just hold missiles with nuclear warheads in them and because this whole time we're in the command room, we're in the ward rooms we're in the engine room, we're never seeing the missiles and then all of a sudden it recontextualizes the entire ship again like Ramis was saying, like this thing this is why this thing exists for this room of death, and they're all red nuke room. Um, and and yeah. I mean that shot's incredible. It's terrifying. And it really speaks to that. Like it is, it's terrifying. Okay, so um, so while, you also have you also have uh, Scott Glenn, right? So while 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 we're learning about what Red October is and why it's special, we're cutting between that and this American submarine that's trying to track it. So that's where we've got Scott Glenn, Scott Glenn, and then the radar guy. What's his name? Uh, Jones, who's in real life is uh, Courtney B. Vance, the guy from Law and Order. Courtney B. Vance, yeah, both great. You know, yeah, I love him. That scene where he like where he makes fun of or he kind of schools the guy. It's a great intro. Yeah. I will say like it's it gets a little much with all the characters at first. It, it throws you. There's in. a lot of them. Like 
Yeah, it, it's a lot to take in. And it, it, I never was, like, super overwhelmed, but and but it was the kind of thing where, like, I sort of retroactively realized what was happening. Sure. I was like, okay, these guys are on a ship. These guys are in Washington. Because then you start getting, like, the aircraft carrier. Yeah. And it just gets nuts yeah. with all the characters. And it does a really good job of, like, sorting and keeping it together and it does it visually but too it's, it's a lot. I, I think that the different there's three different subs that we're cutting between in this movie and they all have unique design elements and cinema uh, you know cinemagraphic elements fo- fo- photographic elements that allow you to distinguish them pretty quickly they're lit yeah. different ways the, the panels look different and so even if you're not immediately like you kind of sense where you are before you even really get confused Skarsgård sub is insane looking uh, it's all like, like green and it's just all neon and he's where, so like, yeah, sweaty and he's like leaning yeah, over his control terrible, panel terrible gig uh to be on his sub i'd much rather be on red october before we go too far into anything else i want to talk about scott glenn a little bit more bart mancuso the uh the commander of the the american sub which is uh, the dallas i think glenn is also really good in this movie i mean one of the things that makes this movie work is that the performances are uniformly excellent and he's yeah. doing an and interesting he, thing too where like he just he just went on a sub and just was imitating the captain of a real sub and which is crazy compared to the theatricality of the red october where you've got like connery who's bombast and you've got curry who's all like oh no what's happening yeah yeah he feels 100 percent authentic he is totally grounded he is totally square i love his glasses but it works because we need that contrast and he's yeah and he's just playing a real guy yeah um and one one thing i wrote down that i should mention right now is like i i just had this thought he was he was just projecting such authority and like such control especially towards the end where he just takes over a sub <laughs> that's not even his and i was, I was just imagining these submarine captains having a bad night and just like having a, a nice cry and some ice cream after like a really tough day. Man, I had and a bad like, day at the office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to like stream some, some Netflix and, and have a little, a little night to myself. And I was just like, Oh, do the, are these guys even capable of that? <laughs> like, could they even No, that's process? what basic training's for. You got to beat that out. of them. <laughs> But really, Glenn brought that out of me. Like, I was just imagining him, like, you know, I, uh, I just, it's been a rough week, man. I just, I gotta get my shit together. It's hard to imagine uh, him outside the submarine. <laughs> he, like, exists on the submarine. He's, he's cohesive with that environment. Right. And they, they do that so well, where you just can't imagine them anywhere else. And then it's like, you think about a real submarine captain. What, what are they, what's their psychology? They have to be, well, another thing that really struck me is, like, how ridiculously cool they are when the torpedo is like two seconds away, <laughs> one second away. So good. Only Tim Curry is a little bit freaked out. This, this, everyone else is like, whatever. This movie builds tension with literally somebody reporting something we can't see. Like, that's that they can't see. They can't, they see. can't see. We it. can't, I mean, like, we cut back to it, but like, we don't have a real sense of space, you know. We, no, and so it's just like. It's just numbers. But we do. We do. That's the craziest part about it is that we do have a sense of the space because of how 
effective the script is sure how good like it is at cutting between the two things like you it's almost like the cuts are like becoming the subs in a way like by cutting from glenn to uh jones you know to jones to or cutting from glenn to jones to the other submarine sure it's like oh i get how close these subs are together and I'm, i'm curious if you really looked at like the editing does it get faster as they get closer together? Like, how, it would be really interesting to like see how that is in the McTiernan tradition of. And are you particularly like, talking about the crazy Ivan sequence when they the subs almost drift into each other? That's a really yeah, yeah, that's a really good one. Where like, and you know, they're using the miniatures, but not that much. I yeah. think there were only like five or six shots of the miniatures. Really, they only do like the most of like torpedoes coming, and then. Or like, we here's a trench wall. Much. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's not like fucking Titanic where you're cutting to the boat every five seconds to yeah. see exactly what's going on. Those miniatures look pretty good, I have to say. They do. So they were, they were gigantic miniatures, and they were filmed in smoke rather than underwater. And then the, the bubbles and the detritus and the, the rotors were all digitally animated by ILM. And I think oh, okay. this is you can you can really see it here. I mean, the digital technology doesn't isn't really perfected. The 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 uh, wakes of the uh, the propellers look like Vaseline smears. Like they don't look like anything really. You know what really struck me was the the torpedo diffusers or whatever. The, right. The those little, like green yeah, things. Yeah. The, the 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 countermeasures. That was like a video game when you throw like a toxic grenade i was kind of like okay really not everything not that stuff doesn't really work except as like a benchmark to keep you on track with the relationship under the ocean of all these different objects yeah and they don't need it because the actors are so good and the movie has you so firmly in hand that it's enough for the radar operator to tell us how far away the torpedo is we don't really need to see it no, you don't need to at all because they're you're you're getting all, right. all that information through both the script but also the way it's being cut. Like you can tell exactly. it's coming closer. Yeah, let's go. But back you're to also the impressed by the fact that they don't give a shit, <laughs> or they give a shit, but they're they're not shitting. Tim themselves. Curry gives a shit. He is shitting himself, but no one else yeah. does. Um, so let's get back to the plot for a minute here. Uh, so we've got all of our chess pieces, and there's the one that we haven't talked about that we have to talk about, which is Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin as Jack Ryan. This was yeah. like his first big leading man role, at least the way he talks about it. I mean, he'd been was in plenty of movies. Was he on TV? Where the hell did he come from? I mean, he was in, you know, Beetlejuice is before this, Married to the Mob is before this. Like, he had had some meaty supporting roles, but he had... This was his this first, was his first like, I am the hero of the movie. Well, and I feel like afterwards, he didn't have that many of these roles. Like, he really... What else did he do that was his movie? Well, let's where take he's a look. an action hero. I he's mean, like, obviously Boss I Baby. I feel like by the time I was like aware of movies and aware of Alec Baldwin, he's already like, I'm a supporting character. I don't care. You, you missed like, my he excellent didn't really joke. have the, the 10 years of like another action movie with Alec Baldwin, another romance. Like he, I don't know. So what, what else has he got? Prior to Red October, he's got a pretty good run of supporting characters. Beetlejuice, Married to the Mob, Working Girl, one, two, three. I mean, but he's married to the mob. He's, he gets killed like 30 minutes in, right? Yeah, he does. Like, he's, but he's, he's iconic. Not a star. Yeah. He's iconic. Yeah. And Glenn Gary, he's iconic. Like, you're right. But After he doesn't this, seem to be afraid to do that kind of thing. He's got leads in some pretty bad movies. Um, 
Prelude to a Kiss, Miami Blues. A lot of I've heard Miami great. Blues is great. I actually might choose that for an episode. I hear it's good shit. Oh, yeah? I okay, don't know. Watch that. It looks psycho. Um, but that's also 1990. Yeah, you're right. I mean, this really is, like, and it's crazy because I think he's great in this movie. Yeah. But he this really is his only, his only um, you know, major, like, his, his really only major hit as a leading man. Well, um, I mean, he had the years of 30 Rock in the 2000s, but even by then he's, like, kind of older. He's, like, in his later 40s. And he's, and he's um, sort of spoofing himself. Right. Uh, but I don't know. I feel like there's... This is another thing about being born in 1990. Like, I feel like I don't know the full story the of full Baldwin. Alec Baldwin there's, like, story? the whole Baldwin brothers. The yes. one thing I remember about Baldwin... Steven? Billy? In, Billy? In the South Park movie, the, the first act of war is that Canada bombs the Baldwins and like they cut to the Baldwin mansion and all of them are sitting around a pool and they're like total dicks. I don't know if there's a reason, like did they just think it was funny that there's all these famous Baldwins or like did Baldwins have like a really bad reputation of being these like dickheads? I have no idea. Like I don't know what the tabloid Baldwin situation was. I think he's I always had a like bit of a, like a, a reputation as kind of a, kind of a, kind of an asshole he strikes me as like a like a, an almost one level below the f- level of fame that like ben affleck got to at sure. least in terms of like acting he certainly like, had fewer major like leading roles than affleck did yeah um but there's no tv or anything that we're missing it was really I mean, just yeah he's got he's got plenty of 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 good no like credits ER, on like Clooney situation i'm just like I don't know where he came from. It's just uh, as, like a, as Peter, a leading I man, like he's just not doing that much that that that's that interesting. A lot of these movies are are just kind of forgotten. Um, yeah, but, but he's, he's you know what's crazy. Great in this. this is definitely my favorite like young Baldwin that I've seen. Maybe other than Glengarry, but that's like a totally different situation. And he feels so much older um, by the time that movie comes around. What I think is 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 so great about this performance is how unselfish it is. You know, he's this. He's just kind of this dorky guy, and he's okay with not really being an action hero, and he's okay with letting other people be like the macho characters yeah. in the scene. It's it was very like distinct. I was I was comparing it to uh, Bruce Willis mm-hmm. in Die Hard, um, and it's so different. He's totally. not the center of attention, and he's really letting all these other people shine. Yeah, which is cool. And even compared to the other Jack Ryan performances, I mean. By the time you know Harrison Ford gets gets in these movies, he's a lot more of an action oriented character. He gets in gunfights, he gets in fist fights, you know. And and like now we've got the TV show with John Krasinski, and like I mean, they're playing up the whole Marine thing in this movie. Yeah. He's a CIA analyst. That's what he is. He didn't even go into combat as a Marine. He just went through training and got injured during training. Like he is. Well, he's so he's so delicate during that scene when they lift him down. Yeah, it's like. I was like, I feel like I'm him. Like, I would be like, of course, he ultimately, like, does the crazy move and lets go. But, like, when they first lower him down, you're like, jeez, like, this is really hairy. Uh, And that scene works because you're like, I don't know that this dude can survive this, but I believe that he thinks he has to risk it. So we've got all of our pieces in play. And and what we learn is that the the Red October has sent a, a letter to the Soviets supposedly saying that he's going to launch his missiles at the U.S. And the Soviets are 
uh, launching a huge countermeasure to try and track the Red October. And the Americans are worried that this might be a prelude to war, that this exercise could, in fact, be the start of a, a preemptive strike by the Russians. And so we've got this apocalyptic sense of, of impending conflict. And in it all, we've got Alec Baldwin as Jack Ryan investigating the Red October, finding out about the Caterpillar Drive, finding out about Ramius, and it culminates in a briefing scene. Uh, he's brought down to like you know the underground at the Pentagon or underneath the, the White situation House. Situation room, right? The situation he's at the room. The White House. And he's told, uh, uh, "You're going to be given a briefing." And a great scene. And Baldwin plays it so well. And and yeah. we learn all about Ramius, and we get introduced to my favorite supporting character in the entire movie, which is uh, Richard Jordan as the uh, national security advisor, uh, Mister Pelt, Miss Doctor Pelt, Doctor Pelt. Um, now this guy, you know, he was, he's one of the, he's a great, like that guy actor. He was in like Logan's run friends of Eddie Coyle. Uh, he was in Dune. He was Duncan Idaho in Dune. If, if anyone likes that movie, I, I certainly do. And he is so, so perfectly pitched as this smarmy, sleazy politician who's still on the right side of the story. Yeah. He's doing gives, the right thing. Who gives... Baldwin the chance, who gives Ryan the chance to prove his theory that Ramius isn't about to launch a, a first strike, that Ramius is trying to defect, and that they should try and help him. And he gives those, him three out of four days, which is pretty, pretty insane. Pretty generous. Let's be honest. And those I'm scenes, giving him like one day. <laughs> you have 24 hours. Yeah, come on, man. This is a nuclear submarine. And he's only got two more scenes, which are the two scenes with the Russian ambassador, and they are both amazing studies in irony where we know that he knows more than he's saying and the russian knows more that they're saying and And they make it so clear like they and it's it's nothing to do with like catering to the audience but like just the fact that it's been written so well and that his mannerisms are so good it's like you get what's going on on those levels yeah it's it's all down to that southern drawl it's like oh ambassador why didn't you tell me we could be helping you he's british right because in logan's run he's british he was born in new york city oh really yeah maybe he wasn't british in logan's run i can't remember well logan's run i mean he's so he's like the 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 chaser in logan's run like the main antagonist guy he doesn't say a lot of dialogue in that movie i don't think well the main guy's british but yeah he's great um, and so, then we're kind of like off to the races. Yeah, it really is. It's a race against time. We've, we, he's, Ryan's got three days. He's got to figure out how to get in touch with Ramius, how to convey that he understands that Ramius is trying to defect without spoiling Ramius's game or alerting the Russians that they know this, because if they do, then they'll never be able to recover the sub. It's like this impossible balancing act of factors. Um, and so first he gets well, on their this. their plan originally is like they, they want to study the sub for like, a they day want to replicate or something, the or like they, yeah, they say to like it's out. impossible yeah. to. Like it's just this ridiculous. I'm just kind of like, what are you gonna do with the sub? What are you gonna make your own sub? Is that what this ultimately leads to? Like they're gonna make one because they, they certainly want to understand the technology. But I mean, it's like, just I think all this tension feels really authentic, which is like the Americans need to see this sub. But if they take the sub, the Russians will know they will ha- they have it. And the Americans can't keep it. I mean, that would be, you know, an act of war, basically, saying, like, no, we're right. going to steal your technology. They've got to make the sub disappear. So he's got to figure out some way to, to, to recover the sub without looking like they recover the sub, while yeah. also letting Ramius defect, without giving any of this away. Um, and it's all just, it's all this, like, process stuff about just, like, how he gets 
to this how he gets to the Dallas. So he, first he goes to the aircraft carrier, um, where we get the sense that like conflict really is boiling over. We've got that we get the plane crash. Well, those guys on the aircraft carrier are really the only true American obstacles mm-hmm. at all in the movie. Like those are the only two guys. And really, it's just the main guy, the main commander. Yeah. That's sort of like, you're full of it. Like, I will say, like, Jack Ryan in this movie is pretty lucky to get as much a very understanding, yeah. stellar team of consummate professionals that really give him the room he needs, especially as, like, not a military guy. Except to, he is challenged and asked to prove himself, and he does. I mean, the general challenges him in the briefing. Uh, you know, the 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 one guy on the aircraft carrier has a problem with him. The other one tells him, "Well, this guy was a marine; like, he knows his shit." And then yeah, even, like, like, like on the Dallas, Mancuso's like, "You don't know what this guy's going to do." And he's like, "Oh, he's got a crazy Ivan to the other side." But that's all he just made. It's all that bullshit. Up, right? But he has to prove yeah. it. Like he he he's being it. forced to prove himself, and he does. So yeah, where do we go from there? Well, we get basically there's a like lot of the, the biggest... drama of the, the the crew of the Red October kind of gets revealed. Yeah, just with the, they that was a great reveal where you're like, oh, they're all in on it because you're wondering how the fuck is he gonna do this without he's, he's handpicked anyone. his officers, so all the right. officers are gonna defect and they've worked out a plan to 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 get everyone else off the ship. Oh, and this is when we find out there's a saboteur too. Another right. complication that like there's a, some unknown yeah. saboteur who's trying to mess things up. Something I, another thing I wanted to talk about with like the defecting is specifically Sam O'Neill's monologue that you were right. talking about. The Montana earlier, scene. Which he was another like, Montana. again, it was another, for me, horrifying indictment of America <laughs> that like his dream <laughs> Is like, I wrote it down. His dream is to have a truck yep. and maybe an RV in Montana and a fat wife yep. that cooks for him. Yep. Like, that is the best you can do. And coming from Soviet Russia, like, that's what he wants. And like, it sounds great, but it's also like, again, machines. Yeah. Like, I just want to use a machine to traverse the landscape and just be it. Like a fucking unit driving around. Like, um, that's all... You're doing the same thing. Well, it's way more comfortable. And I already talked about how, like, I don't really think this scene works. It's It feels like a cliche, like the, I want blue jeans and Coca-Cola kind of thing. But, like, I didn't mind that as... Like, it's, it's like a dramatic thing, and, like, you kind of feel it at the end. But, like, for me, I just got that sense of, like, geez, humans are just, like, all we do is just build... Ever since we invented the combustion engine, all we're doing is building things... And just fucking trouncing over all the land. And like where it leads. It leads to a 600-foot nuclear submarine right. that can destroy it's, all of humanity. So I just thought that was kind of funny. Like, it's yeah. it's just like, oh, you're doing this for that? Like, you, I don't know. It, it, it was hilarious to me. Is that the same scene where, where Connery talks about a war with no battles, no monuments, only casualties? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bunker? It's both of them talking about what the legacy of the Cold War means to them and what defection means to them. Yeah, and that was a really meaningful scene for yeah. me because that spoke precisely to my non-understanding of what the Cold War really was. Sure. Like, and it's it's super interesting to think about, like, oh, wow, these guys have been doing this for 40 years and they got nothing to show for it. And it showed, look at me. I didn't know anything about the Cold War. And the only thing uh, that, that can child. make, you know, 
that can can make the Cold War meaningful is a made-up story like this. Right, exactly. So I found that super interesting. We've got all this business where, where basically what we're trying to do is get Ryan to Ramius. So he's on the aircraft carrier, then he takes the helicopter out, and we get what is really like the biggest action scene of the movie, or maybe the second biggest, which is Ryan dropping from the helicopter. We talked about this a little bit already. All the photography there is great. Like, you can tell that's really Alec Baldwin hanging from a helicopter. And it's just such a, usually in an action movie, it's like, okay, a a truck is chasing a motorcycle and there's a guy with a shotgun shooting. This is just like, how the fuck do you get from a helicopter to a submarine? How do you get to a submarine that's in the (laughs) middle of the ocean? Like... And then only yeah. gets like messages every once in a while. And in like a kind of in that in that harsh environment. Yeah. Of like Arctic Sea. Like yeah, they totally say that. They're like, you know, if you're in that water for more than a few minutes, you're dead. It's something you never think about. Like, how do I get from from helicopter to sub? And it would be really hard if you if you really just stop and think about it for a minute. It's not like a fast and furious situation where you just jump, just bungee jump. You know, like yeah. No, man, it's it's not easy. The, the business with, like, the electromagnetic hook that, like, the, the second in command is trying to use to get him and then, like, knocks himself out with, none of that really plays for me. But, like, Baldwin dangling from the helicopter and then dropping into the water, that works. That's all great. You know what else I love is the timelessness of the fact that they're in submarines and they can't just, like, like talk to each other. Like, right. a lot of old movies especially from this time period, fall into the logic trap of, like, people thinking about it from today's perspective, where they're like, ooh, why don't they just call? Like, but it's great, because they have no service. They have the like, best... It's the ultimate no service. Long-distance communication technology in the world, but you're under the water. You, there's nothing you can do. Yeah. I mean, and you like, get that I, great I found scene. myself thinking about it multiple times. I was like, wait, why isn't Command just hitting up Red October? And I was like, oh, it's because... Uh, they can't because it's underwater. Well, like, you get that great scene where 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 Stellan Skarsgård like surfaces and learns that like Red October is not gonna is 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 defecting, and he's like, "We've we've lost a whole day because we were underwater and we didn't know." But then yeah, so then we get the scene. So he he gets on the Dallas, he proves himself to Mancuso, and then they get in this little rescue sc- sub that Jeffrey Jones introduced earlier in the movie, and they sail. Oh, one thing October. I wanted to mention was before that happens. The guy, the radio technician, gets the he gets the Red October right. with no help. With yeah. no help, he did it first try. So Red October kind of sucks. Let's just be honest. That guy got its number immediately, and that's before Jack Ryan yeah. comes into the picture. Right? They're just doing their thing. Though it's totally it fits in with this idea of like of like the humanity behind the machines. That it doesn't matter how good you make the machine is. It, it what matters is the person. And right. so, like, and that guy's most day, radar guys wouldn't have picked up on that. But Seaman Jones, he's one of the best radio operators in the U.S. Navy. And he, when he hears yeah. a seismic anomaly, he's like, there's something going on here. Right. We and do have a whole... Them. He would have gotten them. Yeah. If they had just done the normal mission... I mean, maybe they wouldn't have been on that course. But, like, if they were trying to start some shit, he would have gotten them. So I thought that was fun. Uh, that for all the might of that thing, yeah. he still takes them down. Well, and in the same way, it actually speaks to, like, the fragility of Connery's mission, which is that if there hadn't been a U.S. submarine that was right there when it launched before it switched to the Caterpillar drive, 
that heard the switch happen and therefore was able to identify Red October and figure out where it was going so that Ryan could get there, he would have failed. Right. You know, and probably would have spiraled completely out of control and could have caused tremendous loss of life. You know, the the this is like the the, the amazing you know, jigsaw puzzle that is the movie where it's like all these pieces have to fit together. And it does it pretty flawlessly. Yeah. So then we've got, so yeah, they, they, they use the little rescue sub to get on the red October. And then we've got the, the confrontation, the coming together, the, the, the red October has faked a reactor leak. So all the crew has left and it's just the, the, the officers who are going to scuttle the ship supposedly, which is like a great, Great plan. And I also love the um, the 20-hour time jump because you start thinking, like, how the hell are they going to do this? And it kind of accounts for, like, Ryan filling. Because at this right. point, all of the Americans are, are down. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone's down with the plan well, after the 20 hours. Yeah. Right? No, like not they, really. But, like, Mancuso's down. Like he's, well, our, he Jones get to is down. October. Everyone's doing their thing. Yeah. Everyone's doing their part. He's got like, enough people they had on his 20 side. Twenty hours to really like figure out this plan, mm-hmm. and he's also anticipating what Connery's going to do. Right. So, like, I, I just really liked that. Like, this shit comes together, but like, there's reasoning behind it. We missed about twenty hours, and we cut in sure. right as Connery's evacuating the ship, and now we're we have all the pieces working together. As, as one unit. I don't think there were any Americans that weren't in on it. Even the the dude that shoots the missiles, Con- James Earl Jones is like, I was never here. Right. So I thought that was cool. I definitely think that, like, we, we don't get the sense that it's like the entire American Navy knows what's going down with Red October. Only the Dallas even knows where the Red October is. But there's this confluence of people that that are in the know, which gives Ryan the opportunity to try and bring Ramius in. And so Ryan and Mancuso and Jones and the, 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 the second in command from the sub all, all show up on the red October with just the officers left on the red October. And then we get the great scene of them coming together. The, the alien meetup. That's all I was thinking about. It's like the moment that you meet the Martians, um, it was awesome. It I was love great. the dialogue exchange where, like, he speaks Russian, and then in Russian he says, "Like, oh, it's good to study the way of your adversary, isn't it?" And then Connery starts speaking English. Yeah, like, that's yeah, great. and it got a little confusing at that point, the whole Russian thing, but it didn't really matter. <laughs> uh, True, you're right. Like, I wasn't sure what language they were supposed yeah. to be speaking because then Scott Glenn would hop in, and I'm like, I don't think he speaks Russian. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think at that point but, they're they're speaking English if they're speaking English and they're speaking Russian if they're speaking Russian. And then there's the the whole plan goes kind of haywire when Skarsgård shows up. Yeah. Uh cuz originally they're just going to they're just going to blow the torpedo and pretend like the thing sank without the fireworks. Right. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, but or, Skarsgård or, shows or, up at the or, last or minute. Or just that they're... Scu- I don't even think anything's going to blow up. They're literally just sinking the sub. Um, mm. But then, yeah, then Skarsgård shows up with his submarine, the uh, the, the Konovalov. Um, yeah. And you get this awesome battle where, like, Red October is basically unmanned. The Dallas yep. can't participate because they're not fighting the Russians. And and so it's, it's only Skarsgård who has, like, the upper hand. Well, and now you also have all of the characters that you've been getting to know in all these different places. It's insane. Everyone like, we care about is on the Red October. So yeah, the Red October 6th, they all die. 
it's nuts that they all are now in the same room. And it turns um, out that the cook is the saboteur and the spy, and uh, he shows up and he shoots Sam Neill, all while yep. Tupolev is trying to sink them. And then Connery and him, ha- Connery and Ryan have to chase after him before he can blow up the Red October. Yep. And then Kuzo takes charge of the ship. They get they get some good buddy time where they're immediately like friends, right? Even though they've never met before, they respect each other. Speaking, yeah, they totally just have a bond that even gets to the point where Baldwin is doing, literally doing Bruce Willis climbing through the air ducts and making fun of that. Uh, come to the coast. Yeah. He's like literally doing a that one impersonation. doesn't really work for me because it feels so much like, hey, I just made Die Hard. We should have a Die Hard moment in here when he's on the catwalk and he's like, don't just next time just write a memo. Yeah, I was like, oh god. But yeah, super Bruce Willis moment. Another thing I wanted to mention, I can't remember when he says it, but my favorite line in the movie, other than the the war with no battles. When James Earl Jones says, Mother of God. That is awesome. <laughs> One of the I best don't line readings. what he's referencing. Is it... I can't remember why he says it. I think it's, it's the arrival of the Russian sub, maybe. Um, yeah. And, and I, I want to share a thing that I remembered. I had actually seen a few parts of this movie mm-hmm. before. And it's because when I was a kid like a teenager, there was a trailer for a movie that was like playing before other kids' movies, but it was all clips of Red October and also Das Boot cut together as like one submarine movie. And they start showing the radar and there's like an outline on the radar, but they're using the clips of like James Earl Jones and of the radar technician and of Scott Glenn being like, there's something on the radar. And it turns out that the, the radar is SpongeBob and it was for the SpongeBob movie. <laughs> and that's pretty funny. That's pretty, they cool. had James Earl Jones, like seeing the sponge or it's, it's a SpongeBob, SpongeBob in a bath with, yeah. a, with a toy submarine. And he's like, go down below and then it cuts to like the the ships like blowing up and james Earl jones saying mother of god and it's like one of the greatest fake out trailers like that actually works i feel like a lot of those fake out trailers are are bad because you know (laughs) it's a fake out trailer from the minute it starts right but this one is amazing, uh, and it's it's like burned into my memory. And when he said "Mother of God," I remembered it. It all came trailer. crashing back. So yeah, and it's it's just funny that like that's for someone like me, that is this movie's legacy. That like I just remembered it as like the SpongeBob trailer. But you know, whatever. Uh, I've there, seen it. Now. There are two things I want to talk about in this fight that I love. One is Tim Curry <laughs> and the Russian sailors misunderstanding what's happening below and thinking the Red October is fighting. A, a U.S. submarine, right? And, uh, which again, why? How are they going to get that past the Russians? What? How does this work? They're going to go home mm-hmm. and be like, "Yeah, we saw the battle. It was crazy." Yeah. So, like, what are the Russians going to say? Well, like, so, oh, there was a battle. What went down? So I think the, the the argument is that like, oh, the 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 sub is sinking. The U.S. are trying to interfere, and Red October is like not going to let them because there were there were encounters like this, you know, where you know torpedoes would get fired across the bow of a ship, or 
or, you know, subs would try and sort of like run into each other where like it was like non-confrontational warfare. You know, it was mm. where things got hot but didn't completely uh, uh, boil over. Um, so the, the official story is going to be that Red October got sunk by a missile that was fired by the U.S. because they wouldn't surrender? I don't know exactly. I, I was a little confused on how that all worked. You know, I'm thinking about it now, and I, I honestly don't remember what this... I, I thought the story was the reactor meltdown, and that it sank, but you're right. But then you've got screws. all these guys being like, oh, the, the Red October is fighting back, and well, then it gets blown up. It doesn't matter, because so you've got them up there, and it's really and it's great uh, dramatic irony, and they're really funny. Curry's really funny. Um, when he's cheering them on, and then well, got, when he says you'll get the the Stalin for this, you'll right, get the you'll order get the, of the, Stalin. The order, yeah, the Iron and, like, Cross. Connery's like, yeah, I will, asshole. You know it. Like it's it's just great. The Order of Lenin. Um, um, and then you get what I Lenin. think is the second the second greatest shot in the movie, which is uh, where the 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 torpedo is about to hit Red October, and all, even though the Dallas can't fire back, it swerves. Uh, uh, between the torpedo and Red October to redirect the torpedo towards it, and then it breaches the water. And you get that incredible shot of an actual U.S. nuclear submarine breaching the water because the Navy was way on board with this movie. They're like, this is going to be our top gun. Here, let us just do this thing with the submarine 50 times so you can film it from every angle. And it's incredible yeah. because you see this gigantic, massive thing just explode out of the water and, and in and what makes it work, which is one of the things that really works about the movie, is it's real. Is that, you know, it, it yeah. feels authentic. The shot when the Red October explodes, or the, the other submarine explodes, is but, so cool. Yeah. Like, what happens when, like, something explodes underwater? That is, it's, like, beautiful. So Mancuso m- manages to, to steer the, the Konovalov's torpedo back into it, and then it explodes. Yeah, yeah. and it's crazy. Yeah. This is actually um, a really interesting change. In the book... It's Ramius who who defeats the Konovalov and actually rams it uh, with the Red October. Um, so this was like I think a really interesting change. The movie says a lot where it's the American sub commander who def- who who is like the hero of the battle. Um, right. But I also think that's to you know raise the stakes of like they both are though because he also he does the move where he the torpedo doesn't explode on impact right, where or he something. steers into it. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, that's um, cool. So yeah, it's it, that was my favorite aspect of it is like they're immediately working together. Right. It's really like the perfect end of the Cold War. Let's be like, it's amazing that this. Look at what I know we that, could like, accomplish if we work together. Yeah, they had they had some doubts about it because they were like, "Oh, the Cold War is over." Right. But the whole theme of the movie is that they're that they like bridge the gap like they they literally start working together at the end and it's like beautiful so like it's it's a perfect movie for 1990 yeah. because it's it's about the reunification of like east and west being played out between submarines it's amazing. which makes it play even weirder today where you know tensions with russia have have you know started to heat up a l- again a little bit you know in a different kind of way but i think you know our relationship with the with the tail end of the USSR in 19, you know, in 1990 is, is different than our relationship with Russia today. And, and that sense of camaraderie and cooperation of common bonds, uniting us across our nationalities, um, feels like a, something that, that 
feels very uplifting in sort of the current climate. Well, I'm also really curious about like that mutual admiration for like other military leaders. Like, does that translate to 2020? Like, are there generals in the United States that are like thinking about generals in, in like Syria or like is the squad commander of like a platoon in Afghanistan? Like, Oh, that terrorist squad leader really got us. Like, sure. God damn you. I'll get you next time. Like, that's, that's an interesting a, point. War yeah. seems so much dirtier now. Like it's, it's like, it's almost like gang warfare in a way where like all this, and I know that this was post Vietnam, which is sort of the Vietnam is kind of the the first modern instance of like this insane guerrilla warfare. But it's like right. such a difference. You have, on one hand you have like two guys that have studied each other and like can anticipate each other's strategic chess moves, and on the other hand, we got a dirty bastard in a foxhole over there. Like, let's smoke him out like the roach that he is. Like, well, it's, maybe it's that's one a... of the unique consequences of a war without battles, where you know it's it's all strategy and tactics and no fighting, and so well, you can but respect no, you get them the without same, them You get being... the same kind of thing in the Civil War and in World that's War Two. You're right. Where, you're right you're so right. it's just that's interesting. It's two very different ways of looking at the enemy and like. Also, just like ta- and like, I don't know the first thing about like military tactics, especially like modern military tactics, and like how that figures these days. But it's just it's interesting to me that like when you have two superpowers at odds, how like they could study each other's great sure. generals. Is there like a guy who was like studying Suleimani or whatever? Like right, I don't know, right? Like or is it just all like these are terrorists? It does like, we feel. Got- Surprise! Like much older than it actually is, you know. In some ways, more than thirty years old. All right, we should yeah. we should wrap up. We've been going for about an hour and a half, but I do want to talk about a couple of other things. Uh, first, I just want to talk about this movie's uh, sort of box office performance and awards performance, where it falls in nineteen ninety. Uh, so mm-hmm. this opens March second, nineteen ninety. It makes seventeen million dollars uh, its first weekend. Um, it goes nice, on nice. to make a total of $120 million domestic, uh, 80 worldwide, so 200 total, uh, 80 international, uh, 200 worldwide, um, which is, I mean, great. The movie cost $30 million. Like, it was a big hit. Uh, it was the sixth highest grossing movie of 1990. So, I mean, it's not uh, uh, like the definitive blockbuster of the year but it is a solid performer particularly since it comes out in you know spring uh before the big summer movie season the first big movie of the year yeah definitely and it does get nominated for a couple of oscars uh all technical oscars it gets nominated for uh sound and sound editing it wins sound effects editing it also gets nominated for film editing though it doesn't win uh, and uh, Connery gets nominated for a BAFTA for Best Actor, which I think is deserved. I think his performance in, is is really oh, critical to the movie, and I can see why uh, you know the British Academy of Film would 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 want to reward him. Um, yeah, and so that's 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 kind of its legacy. You know, it was it was a a great movie, but not like uh, one of the great movies. It did well at the box office, but it didn't do the best at the box office. And it certainly hasn't lived on in a way that like Die Hard has, right? Or like I'm trying to think of other movies. Like Speed has kind of 
yeah lived on like I, I feel like Hunt for October is like second degree cultural canon and that's true I think of like Jack Ryan generally I mean like Jack Ryan is now a TV character he's not he's a streaming right. character he's not he's not a movie character anymore because yeah. they tried to make it work and they just it never really got to that that point where it transcended uh, itself um, but I think it's well, it's funny because you compare it to something like Mission Impossible which was TV yeah and then somehow just got to the next level whereas and, and I feel like Mission Impossible the first one is way more ridiculous than this movie obviously but right. it's like of a similar like scale um and just for whatever reason it, it keeps going maybe that's the tom cruise of it all i don't know but yeah it's just for what it, and it probably didn't help that they made another one of these two years later with harrison ford seems mm-hmm. like a really major gear shift well and the, the funny story about that is that you know they they originally wanted harrison ford for the role but he wanted too much money and when it came time to make the sequels baldwin raised his quote and they said, well, for that money, we can just get Harrison Ford. And so they did. There you go. Yeah. Business at its finest. Um, um, is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap it up? Well, we should briefly, you know, say, you know, at least give some some lip service to this you know, idea of, of the year of 1990 and where this fits in it. We talked a little bit about the social context, the political context. Um, I just want to talk about some themes that we might see starting to develop. I definitely think we have this idea of of clash and cohesion, of, of, of opposites coming together and then finding a way to work together, which I think might be a theme that we'll see come up more than once here. Um, and it might be something that sort of helps define the year 1990 for us. Um, you know, here it's the Soviets yeah. and the Americans and then eventually finding a common ground. I know coming up, we've got pretty woman where you've got, you know, different social classes, um, mm-hmm. coming together. So that'll be an interesting thing to keep an eye on. What do you think? Yeah, I think also the the fact that it's the end of a century is a big part of a lot of these movies. Sure. Uh, you see a lot of kind of like cultural summations. Like I'm, I'm specifically thinking about like Goodfellas, where it's like we're going to take you on a journey through time. And the 90s is always sort of in this. I feel like it's getting a more defined legacy at this point. Yeah. But I've always kind of looked at it as like sort of the the capstone of the of the century like it, mm-hmm. it has a little bit of everything and like pulp fiction was sort of like the the movie that kind of combined all of these various culture things from the last like 50 years of pop culture and like kind of put it all together but like yeah i think that that's you could definitely something we fit might this see more into of. the into that theme where this is like you know this is a summation this is a capper of the cold war in the yeah. same way that Goodfellas is, is is a summation of, of you know of crime, American crime and, and the mafia. Well, and like immigrant, immi- like second immigrant gener- stories, second generation. Yeah, immigrant, immigrant stories. stories, like all that. Uh, I, I think that there's something to be said about like we're coming out of an era and moving into another. Yeah. Era. It's sort of like a weird. This is the beginning of a very strange time in like geopolitical in the geopolitical sphere because like it's post-cold war pre-9-11 right like, it's like you don't really know where the we're 90s going. were thought of a period of peace although there are like you know there's conflicts in in the baltics you've got conflicts in africa that are, are boiling over um yeah but it's largely thought of as a, as a decade of peace because um, america so we was might see more of that involved. but again and like all these movies were being made literally as the soviet union was collapsing yeah. so like it, it's interesting to see what else we're gonna find? Yeah, I don't um, know if they'll pop. If the Soviet Union will pop up again directly, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. But it, that it definitely is something to keep an eye on because it, it influences everything. 
Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Um, cool, man. All this right. Great. Yeah, yeah. So that was Hunt for Red October. Um, March 2nd, 1990, the first movie in our, in our, in our 1990 season of uh, A Good Year. Uh, you got to ask Martin if he went opening weekend. <laughs> or if he, did, like, did he see it in theaters? Almost he two certainly days. not. <laughs> he had two days to go see All it. Right, I'll report back at the next was episode. Was he like, hyped for it? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, or was he like, I mean, you were the second child, so it's not that big of a deal, right? <laughs> All right, so this is uh, Benjamin Ramius Hayne uh, signing <laughs> off. And uh, Nat McGee, I'm out of here. All right. Thanks for All listening, right. everybody. I hope, this, I hope this records. <laughs> Adios. Bye.